Hey everybody, thank you for tuning in to the No Shortage of Questions podcast. We're excited that you're taking the time to listen to our podcast. My name is Nick. I'm a pastor in Texas, and as always, I'm joined by Andy, a pastor in Minnesota. Andy, how are you doing today? Hey Nick, doing awesome. Great to be back in the church, recording from the church again, and uh, it's cooling off here in Minnesota. We're going to have a high of 56 today. No way. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Beautiful fall day. I'm looking out the window and the leaves are beginning to change in the trees, which is freaking me out a little bit. We're on the slippery slope down to snow here, but uh, it'll be a while, thankfully. But fall is beautiful. That sounds absolutely amazing. And something new today, I, I'm as I look at you on our Zoom call, you are still... Standing. You are not sitting for this anymore. You are you are so excited about our podcast that you can't even sit down. Standing <laughs> for. Why are you standing, right. Andy? I'm standing because the energy that's created by this conversation, Nick. I just got to stand up. But uh, it's also, uh, I've been in so many Zoom meetings. I was in five and a half hours of Zoom meetings yesterday. I can't sit anymore. And I've been amazed. My wife, Allie, stands for all of her Zoom. And I thought, she can do it. I can do it. So I have a table here. And I have a little desk at home for when I'm working at home, but now I'm back in the office, and so I just use this table again. Because, you know, that cliche is that uh, sitting is the new smoking. You know, they say it's not good for us and that we all sit too much, so I'm, I'm trying to stand up a little bit. Well, when I get to the point where I can't sit anymore, I just get a more comfortable chair. <laughs> that's awesome. Or you go golfing, maybe. That's <laughs> that's right. That's that, awesome. Yes, that, that's the preferred thing to do. <laughs> so, okay, today we are looking at the book of Acts. We just finished the Gospel of Mark, and so now we are going into the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a continuation of the Gospel of Luke, uh, but it's okay. So we, we got to the point where Jesus rose from the dead. What's next? What what happens next? And so that's what we're trying to, uh, the, those questions we're trying to answer in the book of Acts. And so just wanted to give a little bit of background information. Uh, what we have is Jesus now talking to his disciples, starts with Jesus talking to his disciples, and then Jesus ascends into heaven. And then it's the, what happens with the church? How does the church get from Jesus's resurrection to, uh, you know, 50 years later, 30, 40 years later? How, do, how does the church go from 12 guys, uh, 12 disciples in a locked room to, to what it becomes. And so that's what Acts helps us with. It's, it's less theological, although there's a lot of theo theology in Acts, and it's more of a historical record of the early church. It's an incomplete historical record because it's written through the lens of Luke and the experiences that he has. And certainly the church is doing other things in other places, but that's what we have for the book of Acts. Andy, anything, anything to add there? Well, yeah, this first chapter that we're going to get into, as you said, is a continuation of Luke, and it's all about the crucifixion. Can we believe in the crucifixion, or excuse me, the resurrection? And it's a story after story about, hey, this guy Jesus was actually resurrected. And my favorite thing about the book of Acts is it's a picture, it's kind of a snapshot of the early church. What did it mean to be an early follower, to be a part of this early community of followers of Jesus Christ who had known Jesus, who had seen what he had done, who had lived with him, or who had lived with people who had been with him? And, and then secondly, it's about the exponential or... You know, another thing is it's about the exponential growth of the church, which is just amazing. I mean, it just takes off. And I've seen some numbers on that. I hesitate to quote them off the top of my head, but it's amazing growth. And that's not by chance. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's because people were living in proximity uh, to the disciples and living in proximity, uh, you know, to people that had 
seen and participated in this movement of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit was just powerfully at work. Uh, I love some of the subheadings we see in Bibles, the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, you know, hey, this is what they did. It's a, it's a doing. For those of you that are who are into doing over knowing, I mean, this is what they did. This is this is what the early church looked like. So I, I just love the Book of Acts, and I think we we under uh, emphasize the Book of Acts a little bit. I think because in some ways it's challenging for us. It challenges our notion of Christianity, and also it challenges you know kind of our modern Western understandings of the supernatural. So, Nick. Yeah, yeah, great stuff. Uh, and so just a reminder what we're trying to do here. We are going through the book of Acts, and we are not going to do an exhaustive study. We're not going to read every word. We're not going to ask every question. We're going to pick out five or six questions from each chapter, and we're going to try to answer those because as we read these, questions come up. And so uh, the book of Acts is 28 chapters long, which means Andy and I are probably going to be doing this until summer 2021. Uh, and so it's going to be a slow study, but it's not going to be comprehensive. There's going to be a lot of stuff that if you're following along with us and reading the book of Acts at home, you might read it and a question might pop up and it might not be the same question we have, or we might not even have a question about the verse that you do. And so we invite you to send us an email to let us know if you're reading along with us and you have a question or any question that you want us to, to talk around or through or do our best to answer, it's the No Shortage Podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you as we venture through the book of Acts together. So today we are studying Acts chapter 1, and we're just going to jump right in, verse 3. Verse 3 says, After his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. So Andy... How do, you how do you define convincing proof, and what kind of proof do we have that Jesus is alive? Well, it, it kind of uh, depends. I mean, so often we say, oh, we can't believe in the supernatural today because we have Western science and we're way above that. We forget that in the Roman Greco world, you know, the Rome and Greece, you know, that world, highly intellectual world, very you know, advanced in their thinking, they were as skeptical of all this as we are today, that a man who is dead can be raised. And so we always say it was different then, but we're more advanced now. Well, the truth is we're probably in our culture, society is resistant to that sort of thing as they were then. So we can't really make that distinction. And also it comes down to what is a proof. I mean, when you look at scripture, if we're just limiting it to scripture, there are internal proofs and there are external proofs. Internal proofs include, you know, uh, prophecy and other things that Jesus said would happen eventually happening. We talked about that a couple of podcasts back with the temple. And then there are external proofs, you know, references outside of Scripture to who Jesus was and events of Scripture. Uh, one of the most famous ones is the historian Josephus, who referenced the life of Jesus, and that's kind of an external proof. Did Jesus exist? Well, yeah, Josephus, Josephus said that he did, references it in one of his history books, and then tells stories about these you know, followers, these crowds of people that were following him, obviously, for some reason. But even more important than those is kind of the proof of the experience of Jesus. Who is Jesus to you? What has your experience of Jesus been? And... Uh, who is Jesus to you? And that's kind of the personal experience proof, you know, because you can say, oh, fine, the internal, external 
proofs of Scripture, I mean, you know, that's fine and dandy, but ultimately it comes down to, have you experienced Christ, and who is Christ to you? And I think that is ultimately the most convincing proof and experience of the Holy Spirit, an experience of God's forgiveness, an experience of faith, however you might define that. Uh, what kind of proof do we have that he's alive? Well, the answer to that is he's still working today among us. And uh, it's it's so interesting when people haven't had any sort of experience like that. They're sort of, you know, mildly skeptical, maybe open to some degree, and then something happens in their life, and it's like, good grief, I can't believe this. And in my kind of setting, a Lutheran church, often those stories happen behind closed doors, uh, where someone will say, Pastor, you can't use this in a sermon. I don't want you to tell anyone, but i got to share with you, you know, X, Y, or Z. And and so I think it's it's really kind of exciting stuff. Uh, Christ is at work. The Holy Spirit is doing things. Nick? Yeah, yeah, good stuff. I, uh, so the convincing proof, I think, it, I think it's an important question for each of us to ask, because if our faith is challenged, how do we respond to that? For me, I go to the Wesleyan quadrilateral, the, what the Methodists use. It, it just helps give me language uh, to explain why I believe what I believe. And I know I've referenced this before on the podcast, but that was uh, quite a while ago. So just to, to give an idea of, of, of the convincing proof and how the Wesleyan quadrilateral helps me with that. So basically what the quadrilateral is, is it's a four-legged stool. It's four things that help me explain my faith. And, and, and that is the proof that helps me uh, to, to be able to have a foundation of faith in my life. And, and so the first is scripture, right? This is what the Bible says. The Bible said that Jesus lived, that he taught, that he died, that he rose again. Okay. The, but the second is reason. You know, as I think through this, is this something that makes sense to me? Right? Does it make sense to me? And when we look at the life of Jesus and when we look at the things that he did, uh, does it make sense? Well, uh, it makes sense to me because it doesn't make sense to me. It makes sense to me to look at the life of Jesus and see his motivation and the things that he had to say and the things that he did and how different he was from every other human being who, if they had that charisma and that kind of authority, the type of motivations that they would have and the type of goals that they would have. You know, Jesus was somebody who came and, and had a great following. And what did he do with that following? Uh, did, did, he, did he try to raise a bunch of money? Did he try to be put in power? Did he try to become king? No. No, he tried to tell people that he, he taught he taught love, right? He taught love. He didn't teach authority. He didn't teach, you know, put me in a place of power and I will make your life better, right? He wasn't a politician. Uh, and and so then we look at some, well, how did he display his, his final great display of power? It was in giving up his life. And it wasn't in trying to overcome. It wasn't in trying to conquer. Every human being who had, you know, they want to conquer. And if you have a large group of people following you, you want to conquer and you want riches. And, and Jesus... Jesus said no to all that stuff, right? And so he was a different kind of human being. And, and Jesus wasn't the kind of human being who held a grudge. He spoke about forgiveness and letting go of the past and letting go of the pain and, and, and the, just the things he had to say. It just makes sense. And it, it makes sense uh, to me as a sinner in a sinful world, seeing the way that the world can be and should be. Uh, and so to me, it makes sense. And so then the third thing is experience. The experience was kind of what you kind of talked about, Andy, the experience that we all have with Jesus. No, you know, my experience with Jesus is undebatable. You can't tell me that those moments that I had uh, where I experienced Jesus in my life giving me direction didn't happen, right? And so we all have those personal experiences. And if we, if you don't have those personal experiences, 
you know, I would suggest that you talk to your pastor uh, because there are certain retreats and stuff that you can go on. Not to say you will experience Jesus there, but it's it's a way to get away because, you know, to, usually to experience Jesus, you kind of have to get away from from, you know, the rat race of life and and be intentional about uh, growing in faith and, and, and growing in understanding of, of who Jesus is. And then the fourth is tradition. And so it's scripture, reason, experience, tradition. And when I think of tradition, I think of the martyrs. You know, there are days where faith doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But if you look back through the history of the church, all these people have given their lives for the sake of the church, uh, for the sake of the truth of Jesus Christ. And so there's days where I look back and I think about all those people who died so so painfully so that this, this word of good news would be passed down to, to the next generation. And so, uh, you know, those four things to me are, are the convincing proof that, that helps uh, create a foundation for my faith. Beautifully said, Nick. Well done. Now, your experience of Jesus, do you want to contrast that at all with your experience of the Detroit Lions uh, over your lifetime? And uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's something in the Bible about long-suffering, right? So, <laughs> That's kind of a theology of the cross there. Yeah. Uh, so much pain. Uh, so much pain. Well, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus told the disciples to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Nick, in what ways can waiting be a benefit to our community and congregation? So I think if you were to ask me this a year ago, it'd be a much more difficult question to answer. But ever since we've been in quarantine and waiting to reopen and waiting until we're told that it's safe to to gather again, I think we all have a new perspective on what what it means to wait and, and how waiting can be beneficial. And one of the things we've talked about over this course of time is that Jesus calls us to love our neighbor. And one of the way ways that we are loving our neighbor right now is waiting to be together because the longer we wait the more safe it'll be you know supposedly uh, before we can gather and so waiting right now is something that makes a whole lot more sense uh, i will say that um waiting is something that i had to to learn going uh, being a mission developer starting a new congregation and wanting to having a vision and saying okay i want this to be with the vision i want my vision to come to reality tomorrow Right. And so having big plans and, you know, I want this to happen immediately. And last year I had a sabbatical and on the during my sabbatical, I went around the country and visited with some uh, pastors who I have a lot of respect for. Um, and, and I even visited with Andy, but we did it over the phone. <laughs> um, and I will say that our phone conversation, though, was probably the thing that got us thinking, got me thinking about doing a podcast with Andy. Uh, so there, that uh, was good that came out of the But but uh, I was talking to a pastor and, and if it was. If I got nothing else out of my sabbatical, it was this. He said, there are no shortcuts. There's a guy who's been at the same congregation for 37 years, a congregation that he started. And, you know, there's no shortcut. If you have a vision, you have to do the work, right? And so it's be patient. Focus on the little things. You know, focus on the details. Don't don't be afraid to say, this is my vision, but uh, there's, you know, we have to do all these other things first. There's no shortcuts. Uh, and so that's an important piece of, of, of the understanding pastoral leadership, knowing there's no shortcuts and being patient and letting things happen. And then finally, I would say that uh, one of the things that I did a couple years ago was um, I supervised an intern pastor at a local congregation who was kind of doing uh, interim work there. And so I offered up my 
consulting services, you know, for no charge. And, and I went there and, and kind of talked to the congregation, uh, the leadership, and, and I said, well, you know, what's your goal? Well, we want to go out. We want to invite people. We want new people to come. We want all this stuff. And I said, well, well what are you doing right now to prepare for that? Well, what do you mean? Just, just tell us how to bring people in the door. I said, no, that's, that's step two. Step one is creating a culture of hospitality so that when people do come, they're going to feel welcome. They're going to feel like this is a place where they, uh, they and their family can, can be a part of the community and grow uh, in, in their life and, and in their faith. And so it's, it's, yeah, we all want to bring new people in. We all want growth. But, you know, we have to do the other things that, that prepare us for that. And so it's wait. Let's put that. Uh, put that aside for a minute and let's work on the things we can work on right now to create a ministry of hospitality uh, and, and figure things out. And so there's part of ministry is waiting uh, on that side too. So, um, wow, I've talked for a long time. What do you think, Andy? That's awesome. Uh, just a one short comment. I think COVID has taught us that waiting reminds us and teaches us what we value. A uh, classic example is people showing up for in-person worship that, hey, this TV, internet thing isn't quite the same. I really miss being around people, the value of, you know, kind of an incarnational sort of piece. And then the other thought I have on this is, you know, they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. And, you know, in in a lot of mainline congregations settings like ours, uh, you know, that's, I wonder if people are actually waiting for it, if they just sort of assume certain things, if the Holy Spirit is not something really on their radar. They're intensely focused here in a couple of days. You know, the Holy Spirit is going to come, the Holy Spirit, the gift that uh, uh, promised by God. Uh, just, you know, a thought on that. Uh, are we actually waiting for that? Are we, you know, uh, hoping and asking for that? As we've said previously, uh, we have the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is referring to the baptism of a Holy Spirit, more of the Holy Spirit, perhaps you might say. Just a few thoughts, Nick. Yeah, and and uh, Acts chapter two is when we really get into the Holy Spirit, and so I've got some things that uh, um, that I think we could talk about uh, uh, next time uh, because it's going to be. Some would say that that the it's the acts of the apostles, right? But th- this is the gospel of the Holy Spirit. That that this whole book is yeah. about what the Holy Spirit is doing in and through the early church. And and if we go back to, to the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about how the Advocate is coming, and I'm going to leave this world, but believe me, uh, you'd rather have the Advocate than me, because the Holy Spirit's going to be everywhere, and I'm only going to be in one place. So uh, And so it's important that we have the Spirit, It's and it's important that we have the Spirit today, just as they had it then. But but let's get all in uh, into all of that next time when we get to Acts chapter 2. So let's go to verse 6. I know we said we're not going to read the whole Gospel of Acts, and so far we've done verses 3, 4, five and now we're going to do six but uh this first part is just really good stuff so uh, then they gathered around him and asked him this is the disciples they gathered around jesus and asked him lord are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of israel so andy is this another example of the disciples not getting it or is something else going on here nick that's a great question the correct answer is yes they're not getting it another example of that and that is helpful because we don't get it either and they're probably you know, somewhat confused or wondering. Uh, also, it comes down to the definition of kingdom. Mark chapter 115, Jesus says, you know, the kingdom of God is near to you. Jesus inaugurated, brought in the kingdom of God. Sometimes we refer to that as the now, but not yet. It's not completed, but Jesus inaugurated, initiated, uh, brought the kingdom among us. Uh, so they're probably thinking about a different kind of kingdom. 
not a spiritual kingdom, but a political kingdom. Uh, Nick? Yeah, so I think it's a, I think it's really a legitimate question, uh, and I'm going to explain why. Uh, first of all, this is what they wanted to begin with. They, they, they wanted a, a kingdom, not the kingdom of God, they wanted the kingdom of Israel, a kingdom that is political, as you said, a kingdom where Jesus is in charge and they have, you know, really good seats in the, in the court, right? They wanted to be the, the, you know, assistant to the king. They wanted all the good stuff that comes with being in power. And so, uh, but it was reasonable for them to wonder if this was about to happen because the new covenant was fulfilled. And so what they know is in, in Luke, Luke 22, Jesus says, you know, uh, this is the new covenant in my blood. You know, this is at the Lord's Supper, the, the, the final, the last supper. Uh, and so, but the Old Testament says that the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Israel was part of the new covenant. Uh, Jeremiah 23 points to this and Ezekiel points to this. And so it was, it was understandable. It was reasonable for them to think that, well, okay, you died and we thought it was over. You came back from the dead, and now you must be immortal. There's no, I mean, if we put you out there, you know, everyone knows that you've already died. And so every, no one's going to mess with you now. They've already killed you, and you've already come back. What are they going to do, kill you again? Well, well, you know, they can't kill you again, right? You're resurrected. And so, so now is the time that we march in there and take, out, take our rightful places. Uh, because that's what Jeremiah says is going to happen. That's what Ezekiel says is going to happen. Now, and so, but I think the prophecies of the Old Testament are talking about, as you said, the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Israel. The people of Israel, the, the restoration of Israel is part of what's going to happen in God's kingdom, in God's time, uh, but it's not specifically about the kingdom of Israel. It's specifically about the kingdom of God. So do they not get it? Yes, they don't get it. But at the same time, uh, this is one I think that you can kind of say, well, we understand where they're going and why they're going there. Beautiful. Well done. All right. Uh, verse 8, uh, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Beautiful, famous passage. Uh, so Nick, his primary task of the church to be witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Is that our primary task? And is that what we're doing? You know, speaking to a mission developer here. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, so I think, I think it's the primary task of the church in the book of Acts. To be the pri- that's their primary, t- to be witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. And I think if you split up the book of Acts, you can see how... The first third of it, it's being witnesses in Jerusalem. The middle third of it is being witnesses in Judea and Samaria. And the final third of it is uh, being, well, really the final half of it is taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And, you know, that's what Paul does. Paul spreads it all over the place. And so uh, you can see that's kind of what the Spirit is doing in the book of Acts, is taking this message of, of, of witnesses to Jesus' resurrection and taking it to the ends of the earth. Is that what the church is doing now? I would say probably not. That's not our main focus. We have so many other main focuses. As being Lutherans, right, our main focus isn't so much the resurrection. It's the crucifixion, right? We are the theology of the cross. It's God loves us so much that God would go to the cross for us. Uh, and so I think that we kind of need to reclaim a little bit the the good news of the resurrection uh, and, and be people, be empty tomb people, be people who always have the words he has risen on our lips uh, so that we can proclaim not just the loving power of God, but the power that God has over death so that we can proclaim uh, that, you know, if, if, if he is resurrected from the dead, surely we will be resurrected just like he is. So uh, what do you think, Andy? On, on the resurrection piece, um, had a wise, insightful 
colleague here who always reminded me that, hey, every Sunday is Easter Sunday, and uh, so we want to just lift that up. And I always thought that was helpful. And and then secondly, on the uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, that kind of if you think about uh, concentric circles going wider out, wider and wider, that's kind of a nice way to think about it. Jerusalem be the insiders, uh, you know, Judea and Samaria, kind of people more on the march, and to the ends of the earth, people have no idea. And you're going to reach all of those people differently. You know, if you think about the Gospels, each one of those was targeted really at different demographic groups, at people with different uh, worldviews and understandings. Um, yeah, is, is the primary task of the church to be witnesses to Jesus' resurrection? Uh, I would say yes. And is that what we're doing now? Well, you rightly pointed out that we do lots of things. And uh, the, I think the main thing there is to not forget our calling to evangelism. You talked about being a mission developer. I was one as well. And every single church started basically at zero. And the Lord called someone and then a group of people to create a body of faith there. And when that body stops, you know, witnessing to the people in their sphere, the people around them, I mean, it slowly, you know, stagnates, plateaus, stagnates, kind of then slowly dies and then eventually closes. And it's always amazing to me how these once great churches, you know, you know, are now considerably smaller, including the church I grew up in, uh, is, is about less than a third the size it was on a Sunday when I was growing up. And, uh, you know, so, so that's a reminder to me that we need to be doing uh, witnessing, we need to be doing evangelism. And also, one of the things that our church uses is just a way to structure ministry or the five purposes, evangelism, worship, uh, fellowship, ministry, discipleship. And evangelism is the one Lutherans sometimes forget about. I mean, the average Lutheran, as I've said a million times, invites someone a non-relative to church once every 20 years. I mean, that's not a, an effective growth strategy. And uh, so our church regularly does mailings to the community, and part of the reason why is we're not witnessing. We're like, well, whatever you say or believe is okay, and, you know, I'll just kind of do my thing, and, or maybe there are other reasons for why not. But I think that we, we do want to intentionally find ways to witness to Jesus, and people, at least in my tradition, are people that could really learn and grow in their ability to do so. Nick? Very good answer. I, I hadn't heard that, that Lutheran invites a non-member to church once every 20 years. I think that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's not good news, <laughs> but it's <laughs> that's not. something we need to work on. So, Okay, uh, the next verse, we're going to skip ahead like 13 verses here. And just to give you a brief, uh, what did you miss? Well, Jesus is taken up to heaven, ascended to heaven. The disciples are watching. An angel shows up and says, hey, get to work. He'll be back. And so all the disciples are together. And one of the things that I that is so often forgotten that I, I think uh, in this first chapter that I think is neat is that as the disciples are together, it says there's about 120 believers gathered together. Jesus's mother, Mary, is there among them. Uh, so she's there among them and uh, praying with them. So I think that's really cool. Uh, so verses 21. So go to verse 21, 23. Peter kind of steps up and takes a leadership role, and he says we need to replace Judas. So he says, therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of, this, uh, of his resurrection. Verse 23, so they nominated two men, Joseph called Bersabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. So they set aside two. Now this this criteria for who fits in someone who's been with us the whole time and you know 
there's nowhere in the Bible that says this. So it seems like Peter's just making this up as they go along. And I don't know why Joseph Persabas Justice needs three names. But anyway, uh, and so then they decide, okay, we're going to add a 12th apostle. Now, I think it's an interesting question. Did the disciples make a mistake by rushing to add a 12th apostle? What do you think, Andy? You know, I'm I'm unsure. Uh, you know, it, 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 something sacred about the number 12. I mean, it's kind of like the number seven and the number 40 recurring. I'm really uncertain why it has to be 12 uh, myself and whether it's a mistake. Uh, Nick, what are your thoughts? Well, I, so I think it's interesting that there's Jesus ascends, and so there's this leadership void, and Peter just jumps right in. You know, I, we have the, the, the text in Matthew where, uh, you know, Jesus kind of ordains Peter to be the leader. But the thing we know about Peter from the Gospels is that Peter talks a lot, and usually when he says something, it's a mistake. Right. I mean, that, that's, <laughs> that's just great. what we know about Peter. Um, and so uh, just to kind of give away the ending, Matthias is chosen. And so there are a lot of scholars and commentators who think that Matthias was the wrong choice, that that there should they should not have done it. They should not have rushed to do it. And there's three main reasons why. And I find these incredibly interesting. One, this was done before they received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in chapter two. They could have waited until they received the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, go and wait. And when you have the Holy Spirit, then you'll have the, the guidance of God, right? And so this is done before that. So they, they probably could have waited for that. Reason number two, we never hear of Matthias again. He never shows up again. Uh, and so what happens to Matthias? What does he end up doing? The Bible doesn't say. We don't know. Now, is this a main, you could say that this is a main you know, point of, of to, to make here, but going forward, except for Peter and John, going forward in the rest of the Bible, we never hear uh, any of the other original 12 disciples mentioned again after Acts chapter 1. They all just go their own way and do their own thing, and they're never mentioned again. So Matthias is never mentioned again. Well, neither are, you know, the other disciples. So is that a big deal? I don't know. But I think this is the important reason. This is the one that causes a lot of people to have you know, questions. Paul was supposed to be the 12th apostle. Paul was the one who was supposed to take Judas's place. Uh, Paul even argues that he was, you know, he had the same kind of resurrection experience that the other disciples had. I think that's in 1 Corinthians 15. And so he was supposed to be the new 12th uh, apostle. And and so Revelation 21.14 says that there, uh, the foundations of the new Jerusalem will be built with 12 pillars um, uh, and and they are 12 foundations and the 12 foundations will be named after the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So when we get to heaven, when this new Jerusalem, when we see it, is the 12th one going to be Paul or Matthias? You know, and so uh, I, I think it was, I, you know, I've heard people argue it both ways, but I, I think it was probably a mistake to do it so quickly. Yeah, uh, if you think about it, I mean, it, there are parallels all over the place to how we do church life, too. Uh, you know, someone who feels passion for a ministry, feels called and led by the Lord to start that ministry, effectively goes through the life cycle of that ministry and then ends on the, you know, the low end when it's time for them to hand it off to someone else. And unless they've done the really hard work that Jesus did of handing off the ministry and teaching others, giving away the ministry, we call it in our church, if they haven't done that, they wander into the pastor's office and they say, Pastor, I'm done. I cannot do it anymore. You need to find somebody else. <laughs> and they just lay it on you like there's this, uh, you know, the burden is now on you to find someone else. We got to fill this spot. We got to fill this spot. And the mistake that we make in leadership is we take the bait. 
And we say, oh, you're right, we got to do this because we can't imagine our life without this ministry going. And then we rush to find somebody, please, 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 won't you take this? And unless they've been, you know, uh, you know, gr- unless they've been trained in this ministry, unless they feel the same passion and the same calling, and unless they have the right giftedness, it is so often a mistake to rush into uh, filling an empty ministry spot because we got to have somebody find the best warm body and just run with it. And also we're perhaps like you're saying that uh, Peter was, we're not all that good at picking. I mean, someone was asking me yesterday, with good reason, do all of the members of the church board, are they all uh, giving members of the church? And I thought, well, that's an interesting question. They wouldn't have gotten on there if they weren't, you know, uh, contributing financially to the uh, church. And, And I think, you know, what they were really getting at is what are the qualities that we look for in the various roles within the church? And I think spiritual giftedness is one uh, commitment is one. We could go through all kinds of core values that what really make someone. Uh, but it's interesting here that Peter seems to be doing the picking, and it was Jesus that picked Paul and picked him, you know, road to Damascus, Saul. And, uh, you know, so it's kind of like, who is the Lord calling into our midst? And we can easily uh, make mistakes as pastors and in our own life by just trying to find the next warm body that'll fill this this role. And that really takes away the whole spiritual component of who does the Lord want to serve in this role. And and that's something I've picked up having been a part of church staffs here now for, I think the first one I was on was 91. So yeah, Nick? Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't made the parallel to church, but that's so true. It's so true. It's we need to find somebody. We need to find them today. And, uh, uh, you know, if you can't find somebody by the end of the day, then we're in trouble. And, um, you know, I think it goes back to sometimes the people of God are called to wait, called to wait, you know, called to wait to find uh, the right pastor, called to wait to find the right leader within the congregation. So, so, so true. Good stuff. Nick, verse 26, then they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. So they chose by casting lots, and they essentially rolled dice uh, to pick someone to take Judas's place. I don't know if I would have wanted to take Judas's place. but uh, So, Nick, does this show reliance on God? Is this uh, a good way to discern God's will? Should the church go back to casting lots? Uh, Nick? Such great questions. I mean, this is... Uh, in the Bible, casting lots is something that's done often. I mean, you know, when Jonah is on the ship fleeing Nineveh, right, they cast lots to see who who was the one who was causing the great uh, storm, and it came on, uh, came on Jonah. Every time we see in the Bible where they cast lots, uh, it comes up according to the Bible the way God wants it to. So why don't we start casting lots when we elect bishops, you know? I mean, it's, I don't know. It's certainly a practice that we've gone away from. Is it, does it show reliance on God? I don't know. I mean, I've been to a craps table uh, in, in, in Vegas. Uh, you know, I don't I don't gamble very much at all. But I, you know, back uh, many years ago, I went one time and, and, and I, you know, just the way those those dice roll, I don't think God has anything to do with it. Uh, certainly, uh, I would think that God, well, uh, I don't know. I, I I did go to seminary because I won a jackpot in Vegas. So that's a, that's a different story. <laughs> yeah, so that's great. Maybe, maybe, maybe there is something to it. I don't know. Uh, is this any way to discern God's will? I don't know. Let me flip a coin and I'll tell you. I, I mean, I just, I don't know. Should the church go back to this? Absolutely not. But uh, but I think one of the things that this teaches us, uh, an important lesson, uh, is that, and we talked about this in our Bible study last night, is that just because the people want something 
doesn't mean that it's the right thing, right? Uh, and so if a church, if a congregation decides they want to do X, Y, and Z, you know, if it's not scriptural, you know, the, the ELCA Constitution says the Bible is the, uh, the norm and the authoritative source for which we are going to live out our, uh, and proclaim our, our lives of faith together. And so, you know, I think we, we, we don't turn to, we don't turn to the, the roll of the dice. We turn to what Scripture says, uh, and, and we do our best to live that out as faithfully as possible. What do you think, Andy? Well, Nick, casting lots is in the Bible, but you know what is not in the Bible? Uh, you know, democracy, Robert's rules of orders, you know, votes. I mean, those things are not in there. Uh, I'm sure someone can find some exceptions to that in, to some degree, but it's pretty fascinating. Often we say it's biblical and this is in the Bible. Well, you could make that case for casting lots. Uh, it's pretty interesting. By the way, I've never been to a craps table or been to Vegas. Uh, so just uh, noting that, I thought it was fun to... Uh, just make that point, and you're about to say something. You're such a good person. You're such a good person. <laughs> you're such a good. You know, while, while the rest of the world is in Vegas or like at the movie theater watching movies, Andy is at home reading scripture by candlelight. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I did want to say, uh, just fly the pious flag, their piety flag, for a bit. Uh, just... Have you ever heard the story of uh, my my trip to Vegas, where I ended up going to seminary? No, I mean, everybody listening to this podcast right now is dying to know the connection between Vegas and your seminary experience. That's true. Go. So the, the year before I went to seminary, uh, I went to visit semin the seminary, and they told me how much it was going to cost, and I wasn't going to get financial aid because I was working in a, you know, a job. Uh, and so the, the, the financial aid is based on your income. And so uh, I just couldn't afford it. And uh, I was dating a young lady, and uh, we went out to Vegas to celebrate uh, her father's birthday. So she stayed in the room with her parents, and I just had my own room. And uh, we had talked about it, and she said, well, I do not want to be married to a pastor, and I don't want to be a pastor's wife. And so I was like, I can't afford to go, and I don't know what's going to happen with this young lady, but she doesn't want to be a pastor's wife. So uh, so I land in Vegas. They have had already been there, and we, we start walking around, and we break up. We break up. And so we break up, and I'm sitting in MGM, and uh, she has to use the restroom, so I stop. And, uh, and I just sit down at a slot machine right next to the bathrooms and I just put in, uh, I put in $3 and on the first poll, I won $6,000. <laughs> that is great. By the time she walks out of the bathroom, the attendants are putting hundred, a stack of hundred dollar bills in my hand. And so I'm just thrilled, right? I'm like, well, this is great. And so I call my sister and I'm like, yeah, we just broke up and I just want all this money. And my sister goes, oh, now you can go to seminary. And I was like, oh yeah, that's what this money's for, isn't it? So uh, <laughs> that's great. So I, uh, I enrolled in seminary and as they say, the rest is history. So there you go. A little bit of Pastor Nick tri uh, trivia for you. Oh, that is awesome. That is a great story. So the Holy Spirit was at work there. And, you know, in a way similar to casting lots. So Andy's never been to Vegas, but the Spirit has. I, I just have one Vegas story my mother used to tell. My grandfather, Klein, after he retired from the Navy, they retired to a little ranch outside of Las Vegas in a place called Searchlight, Nevada. And they were, he was in Searchlight, or he, excuse me, he was in Vegas one day with my mother, who would have been you know, probably middle school age. And he got a flat tire, didn't have enough cash to pay for the tire. So he said, wait here. And he went into one of the casinos and played uh, blackjack and, and, uh, long enough until he had uh, enough money to buy the tire and came out and bought his tire and they went home. <laughs> I thought that was uh, some pretty good confidence. And I'm pretty sure it was blackjack in your ability and your card playing ability. So that's awesome. That is awesome. Isn't that's that awesome? Talk about faith. <laughs> there you go that's faith 
All right, well, we'll stop there. There's Acts chapter 1, and we will see you next time, Acts chapter 2, the uh, day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit showing up. So a lot of great stuff to talk about there. Uh, Everyone, uh, thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day. Uh, And if you have questions, email us, noshortagepodcast at gmail.com. Andy, great to talk with you. Thanks, Nick.